Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You know, after we reluctantly put up the podcast of our interview with Boyd Bushman on the Paracast website, I got to thinking, you know what, this is going to be the worst in terms of number of downloads. You know, three people will download it. That will include, of course, Boyd Bushman and maybe some kids of his or something, grandchildren will download it. That'll be it. Within two days, we set a record number of downloads. People like to hear things that are odd and uncomfortable, I think. That's what it is. That's why they watch television. Well, television's going to be more odd and more uncomfortable if the writers stay on strike. No, maybe they'll get some new blood in there and they'll make something interesting. Yeah, see that as an opportunity. You've seen what the current writers have chunked out. I mean, let's get some new blood in, darn it. I mean, just honestly, seriously. Sure. I know that there are people who are really tied to their shows. They love their shows. They watch their shows religiously. But isn't the current trend reality TV and away from episodic written television? Is episodic television having some sort of a renaissance at this point, do you think? Well, people are getting tired of reality shows. Well, that's good. Because they've run out of gimmicks. You know, you've had reality shows now based on reality shows. And the only reality show sort of based on a reality show is Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. David, the guy from the Seinfeld show. I think that's a funny show. Even though it's bring, a lot of bring back, there. Uh, no, bring back Gary Shandling. Okay. Bring back that, that show that he had that I always thought was essentially what it would have been like working on the Johnny Carson show. You know what I'm talking about, that Gary Shandling show. Oh, sure. No, I watch it occasionally. I think that and Curb Your Enthusiasm, they both demonstrate what reality shows should be. Reality I've, shows based I've on reality shows. I've never get the Curb Your Enthusiasm. I, I don't like it. The guy, he's like a worse version of me. I can't watch that. Why would I watch that? Okay, well, that's that's understandable. Now, why are we talking about television on the Paracast after talking about... Phenomenon. Let's talk about Phenomenon, and let's talk about this medium guy who almost punched out Chris Angel. Now, that was some fine, fine television, let me tell you. Tell us about it, for those who don't watch the show. Oh, no, well, I had to watch this thing because it's got Woody Geller and uh, Chris Angel. And, you know, that's got to be a strange, strange time. So, yeah, I've been watching the show Phenomenon, where they've had some some really interesting people, actually. This guy, Aaron Raven, who, fascinating to watch what he did. I was on the edge of my seat. It was a good gag. But then you had this guy, Jim Callahan, who is a very strange monkey. And we should get him on our show, because that would be even stranger than the Boyd Bushman episode. Very, very odd stuff. And they're doing this live TV, and all of a sudden... This guy Callahan and Chris Angel are just about ready to punch each other out, and it was it was phenomenal television, good stuff. The question is, was that a put up job or like they do I, the WWF or who no, cares? I don't think so. Well, you know, it had that feeling for a moment, but I think this is actually one of those moments when the situation really went out of control. It's well worth searching down on YouTube. It's it's floating around YouTube. Maybe I'll, I'll go dig up the link to it and throw it on the Paracast forums, but. Oh, man, it was just great stuff. Really, really fascinating. And this guy, Jim Callahan, he's better than Milton Berle. <laughs> okay. Got to see this. No, it's great. Uh, you know, you have. I can't do it justice trying to describe it. Fascinating guy, this guy, Jim Callahan. One of the stranger people I've ever seen. I won't even try to describe what he did. He's a paranormalist. A paranormalist? A paranormalist. All right. What's a paranormalist? What? <laughs> what? I don't know. Go type it to Google. See what happens. I don't know. Google knows everything, you know. 
Right. Yeah. Google's so taking over the world. In fact, I think they're going to, okay, paranormalist. Let me type. You Google know for president. See now, oh, 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 you're doing it. You're typing into your keyboard so that everybody on the show can hear it instead of the way you normally do it, where people can't hear it. It's what terrible. is a paranormalist? And also, what is a master magician? The short answer is the I create reality. Ooh, create your own reality. Okay. My, my buddy Dave Grooms told me that at Rutgers University after we painted the wall in our dorm room. Okay. We painted Dave, uh, Chris, and myself. We painted the wall. We had this. We painted this big knocked-out hole in the wall where you could see the universe behind it and galaxies and all sorts of cool stuff. You get to paint your wall in college. It's really fun. Okay. My son never did that. Well, I feel bad for him. He didn't get the full college experience then. Well, I have to tell him when he gets back from Spain. Okay. Might be painting the walls there. You don't know. He could be. He could be. He sent me some interesting photos. Anyway, so just think, yeah. the last two oh, weeks I of the Paracast, yeah. I stepped over that line. The last two weeks in the Paracast, we had Boyd Bushman. Which the is last two weeks we had him on? Well, we it seems on. like two weeks. And I didn't get to say the and. All right. The good. and word. And author and hypnotherapist, Dr. Bruce Goldberg. In other words, we took voyages into the twilight zone. Yes, we did. And now we're going to have a voyage into another kind of zone. One that Rational is, zone. The rational zone, I think. I think we need a little bit of rational zoning. As long as we don't talk about the Iraqi occupation. I got a better idea. Let's talk about the other side of truth with Paul Kimball coming up next on The Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina del Rey, California, that's Rey spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, 
send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Piedi. You never know what's going to happen next. Paul, we first met finally face-to-face at the wonderful X conference in Gaithersburg. We've been wanting to have you on the show since then, and I'm going to put you right on the spot right from the very get-go. Justin, in your opinion, who is the most interesting, incredible person that spoke at the conference? I think I know the answer to that one already, but we'd like to know who is the biggest loon that put themselves up on the uh, on the stage at that event? What do you think? Well, I would say that the answer to that question is probably the same. The most credible person and the most interesting person is, is probably Nick Pope. Not probably, it is Nick Pope. Um, And the biggest loon would be Nick Pope and me, because we agreed to sit on the stage for the final panel. And if you're if you take yourself and I don't mean take yourself seriously, but you know what I mean, if you if you sort of veer towards the serious end of UFO research, you should probably never sit on a panel with just one of Alfred Weber, Michael Sala, you know, a couple of other people, much less all of them at the same time. Because you can just, even in that audience, when when Alfred Weber went off, so here's your real answer in terms of the biggest, well, Loon, nice Loon, I met him, he's a nice man, but Loon, when he started talking about how aliens brought the World Trade Centers down using particle weapons or something, whatever he was talking about, you could see even the other exopolitics people were starting to roll their eyes. So when that happens, that's a pretty good sign. Um, And that's only for the final panel, because Stephen Greer trumps all. Oh, didn't he now? But he didn't show up for the final panel, so I don't really count him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I understand that Greer tore the house down or caused people to leave the house, or what happened with him? Well, yeah, um, Stephen Greer, who I've now taken to calling the Benny Hinn of ufology, um, (laughs) with his traveling evangelical roadshow. Meet my aliens for $800 in the field in Virginia, whatever, and ye shall be saved. Um, Yeah, I guess he tore the house down. I mean, the thing about Greer is he packs him in. I understand why people like Bassett bring him to conferences, in one sense, because you can guarantee that people will pay to come see him. But, you know, you can guarantee that people will pay, a certain group of people will pay to see just about anything. So what? <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that you should have that person there. There were a lot of other people who came to see a lot of people besides Dr. Greer. And I don't think, you know, you need to have Stephen Greer at your conferences anymore because, again, like Alfred Weber, he is, you could see even some of the people who believe in the exopolitical agenda or whatever it is, even some of them were rolling their eyes when Greer was up there, basically giving what amounts to a contactee evangelical, the Space Brothers are here to save us sermon. You know, mixed in with a little bit, if you've ever seen Magnolia, where the Tom Cruise character, uh, yeah. motivational speaker. I mean, Greer's kind of like that. And he's, he's frankly, 
he's a little scary because he he's sort of buffed up. You know, he's he's kind of been working out. You can tell when he wears those tight sort of uh, golfing shirts or whatever. I think to show off his muscles. People people think I'm going through a midlife crisis. I think Greer is definitely full bore into a midlife crisis, and it's it's really he, it, it is you know it's a freak show. It's the Stephen Greer traveling freak show, and it has been ever since really he first came out in the late 1990s and made this big splash with the so-called disclosure press conference or whatever. And you know, ten years on, it's it's just freakier than it's ever been. Paul, you so, mean this is freakier than that guy in Czechoslovakia? No. Um, don't go there. Oh, jeez. Look, the interesting thing is nobody cares much about our friend in the Czech Republic, so that's fine. And, you know, in, in, in his own weird way, uh, and for those who may or may not know who we're talking about. Don't mention the name. There you go. Talked over you, so you wouldn't. We're going to put a beep. Every time we mention that name, it's going to have a beep. Um, Well, there you go. You know, at least once, somewhere in the dim recesses of time, he might have done something that was useful. Whereas in Greer's case, he's done nothing that's been useful. In fact, he's done an awful lot of stuff that, in the, the broader scheme of things, has proven very harmful to anyone who's interested in the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. Well, wasn't um, the Disclosure Project, didn't that seem to be, at least on the surface, something that would have value because he actually was in touch with people who had important things to say? Well, here's the thing. The idea of bringing people forward who are credible witnesses and have credible stories to tell is a good one. It always has been. He, he didn't think of it. There's, it's been done before. It'll be done again. The problem was that Greer brought credible people forward at the same time as he brought and the phrase incredible people just doesn't do the no, justice. You know, no. liars, hoaxers, frauds, hucksters, you know, mixed in with the credible people. So you get somebody like Bob Salas, Captain Bob Salas from the Malmstrom missile base case, who is a credible guy who tells an, an interesting, incredible story that should be heard. And then, you know, sitting next to him is somebody who completely demolishes Salas's credibility, because you are guilty by association in this world. I'm sorry. So, you know, if you sit next to somebody who's a liar or a hoaxer or a fraud, you take a hit yourself. And that's what really the, the quote, quote, disclosure project, the big problem with that was, is Greer mixed them all in. And so as a result, and I've talked to a number of people who I consider to be on the credible side who were part of that many years ago, and they regret ever having been a part of it. And they, they, to a person, will tell you that they didn't know it was going to go down the way it was, and they didn't know that Stephen Greer was who he was. Isn't this um, an unfortunate thing, though, about more and more of these UFO conferences? They mix the people who we all expect to be sane, scientific, logical with the crazies. You know, it's like a sideshow. It's like a carnival where you have sane people, and now we have nutty people. And, you know, of course, the sponsors don't always have a line of demarcation between these two extremes. You see, in the old days of the UFO research, and I go back to the old days, we would have separate conventions. We have a serious convention, and we have a nutty convention. Now we have everything in one room. Yeah, it's funny because there's a thread going on in your discussion forums now 
under the uh, the title Richard Hoagland, but it sort of devolved off into a conversation about the so-called mainstream media and how it's evil and, and why UFOs don't get reported seriously and blah, blah, blah. And I would say one of the main reasons why is ufology, the people who are involved in whatever ufology is, are, are to a large degree to blame themselves for a whole host of reasons, but not the least of which is that you'll get a guy like Stan Friedman, who is, you know, a serious guy, or Nick Pope, for that matter, who's a serious guy, and they wind up sharing the stage with guys like Alfred Weber and Stephen Greer and Michael Sala. And, well, okay, so what exactly do you expect the so-called, quote, quote, mainstream evil media to do? Sift through all of this? Why? Because the UFO guys won't sift through it themselves. So why should you expect the mainstream media to do what you're not willing to do yourself, which is take the kooks out of the equation and just focus on the serious people? Because there you are up on the stage with the kooks. So you'd get lumped in. Having said that, yes, I was on the same stage um, as some of the kooks in Gaithersburg. But at least I know going in, and I don't hold myself out to be some grand uh, maven of the UFO research community. I make films. That's what I do. And I pontificate and, and commentate. And so if you're going to do that kind of thing, sometimes you've got to get down there and get your hands dirty. But if you are holding yourself out as a serious researcher in the UFO phenomenon, you have no business being on the stage of an exopolitics conference or frankly any ufo conference that i can think of with the possible exception of the mufon symposium they still generally try and be relatively serious well um, have you talked to the people who are serious who go to these conventions and said hey don't you think that you're kind of hurting the cause by being involved in that yeah, of course. I've had that conversation with Stan Friedman a number of times over the years, as have other people. You know, well, his line is, and many, many of these people make the, the point, they would say, it's better that we go and that the people in the audience hear the, the serious side, and so we can at least make our point. And I would say two things to that, and I have. First of all, most of the people in the audience, and David, you were there, you saw most of them, couldn't care less about the serious side. They're already sold on the not serious side, and the aliens are here to save us and all that. So, you know, it's not like you're preaching to a neutral audience where you can sway them away from what these, these, these other people are saying. They're, they're pretty much already sold. And then I kind of use the sort of thing. I said, well, look, if you're with the Jewish Defense League, I'm just guessing you probably don't show up at a Holocaust deniers conference and sit on the stage with, you know, people who say, well, you know, the Holocaust never happened. Maybe you do, but I don't, I don't think so. You might pick it outside. But in, only in ufology, as far as I can tell, of, of anything, do the serious people, you know, the Pope doesn't get up on the stage with, well, Benny Hinn, <laughs> there you go, or, or David Koresh or whatever, uh, if he was still around. But in ufology, it's like a melting pot. They just mix them all together. And having said that, there are a number of UFO researchers who don't. You'll never see Dick Hall, for instance, at a conference sitting on the same stage as Stephen Greer, and you'll never see probably Kevin Randall. And there's a, there's a fairly long list of other people um, that you won't see them there. Jerry Clark from QFOS is another one. So it's not like all the serious guys. It just seems that there, there are some of them. And Nick Pope is a good friend of mine. And I would say to Nick that perhaps it's time to maybe not do those conferences anymore and speak at them. And I've, I've said that to Stan over the years, too. So I came, I saw, I conquered, you know, good for the, the exopolitics people. They're all, David, you met them. They're very nice people. It's not a personal thing. It's just they're in a different world. And if I think you are, view the UFO phenomenon as a mystery, 
that deserves serious investigation and we don't know what it is, you're not in their world and you shouldn't be in their world. You should be over in the other world that says, well, we don't know, so let's continue looking because they think they know. And that's great. God bless them and off they go. But they're on a different bus heading in a different direction. Well, you know, here's the thing, Paul. I agree with that to a fairly uh, significant degree. At the same time, I think there's this element where if you're interested in talking about this topic, there aren't many venues in which to do it, uh, serious, goofy, or otherwise. And uh, I've said on the show many times that this is in many ways a form of therapy. At least that's the way that I see it. And if you can get somebody to pay your way, maybe not pay you any significant money to get up on the stage, but cover your expenses and maybe pay for your hotel room, I think there's an element of it actually being somewhat, I don't want to say entertaining, I almost want to say fun, to go and get up in front of an audience and talk about this stuff to people who will even stop and take the time to listen. And I think that's, if you ask people, you know, besides the fact also that everybody's sitting at a table right outside of the main hall selling their DVD or selling their book and signing it for pair. Right. So there's that as well. I didn't. I was offered a table to sell DVDs, and I specifically said no. Um, I wanted to enjoy the sort of show, and I have no interest in going to conferences and sell DVDs. You know, you can get them from our distributors or whatever. That's I I don't like doing that, Um, but I don't begrudge people who do do it. That's how they, you know, make their money, and it's fine. But I just look, and I don't mean to pick on Nick um, Pope, but I would say, Nick, you can get an audience. You're like the Fox Mulder of the United Kingdom. You're an articulate, intelligent spokesperson for the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. You've been on the BBC and blah, blah, blah. You don't have to go to the X conference, um, and you don't have to go to any of the other real freak shows. And I would also say that you guys, you can start your own conferences. Honestly, I did. I ran a conference here in Halifax last year, and the speaker lineup was uh, Mac Tony, serious guy, whether you agree with him or not, Stan Friedman, Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, those are all good guys, me, Will Wise, who runs the Project Blue Book Archive, and Bob Zimmerman, uh, one of the foremost historians of space exploration. It has nothing to do with UFOs, but I wanted it to be a conference about not just UFOs. And those were all serious guys. So, you know, and I put my money where my mouth was, and 50 or 60 people showed up, and uh, great. I paid the way to come up here kind of thing. So if you don't like what you've got, then do it yourself and change it and do it in a different way, in a better way, and mm-hmm. uh, instead of just going again to the freak shows. You know, you if you go back through the years, there was a point where the freak shows began to happen, and I think it was the mid or late 70s, because before then you had the giant rock convention for the contactees, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then you had the conventions for the serious UFO people. And then at some point in time, they decided to have a mixed venue to get a larger audience. And it became not about presenting information, but about the money. It became a, a very much about the money. And if you're putting a lot of money into a convention, and I've done it myself, it's a, something I vowed never to do again for the rest of my life. You're putting money into this thing, and you expect at least to get back what you put in, you know, minus a few dollars. You don't mind if you break even and you have a good time, but you don't want to pump in five grand and, and lose three of it. So you say, well, no. what do I do to fill the house? Because suddenly you're an entertainer. You're a promoter. You're a producer. I've got to fill that house. Well, hmm, I'll throw in a contactee. Suddenly you've sacrificed whatever meager principles you've had, and here we are. Here we are 30 years later. 
Yeah, cool. And it's a very, I think it's a very, you touch on something that's, I think the timing, you're absolutely right. It's a very complicated story. And to me, it has an awful lot to do with with what I've always called the Condon effect and the Condon committee report in the late 60s and the chilling effect that had just in general on the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. And so in the 70s, I think you had this this confluence of events, which was a, a real diminishment of interest from science and journalism and politics in the serious end of the UFO thing, because everybody just pointed to the Condon Committee and said, look, the Air Force is out of it, and Condon has put the holy writ down and said, there's nothing here for science to look at. That happened at the same time, pretty much, you know, give or take five years, which in the universal bucket of time is not even a grain of sand, happened at pretty much the same time as Roswell broke again. As Stan and Bill Moore and a few others sort of rediscovered the Roswell case and crashed flying saucers, which nobody took seriously in the 50s and 60s after the Aztec scam. Suddenly, crash flying saucers became sexy again. And with that came crash flying saucers, the, the cosmic Watergate, the government conspiracy stuff, alien abductions not far behind. And ufology in the 70s, the, the, just the study of the UFO phenomenon, the way it was perceived by the public even changed within a 10-year period period and not for the not for the good I don't think so people stopped talking about what they used to talk about back in the 50s and 60s leaving aside the contactees by and large which was serious cases you know you'd send teams out to investigate NICAP would send people out to investigate the Zamora sighting in Socorro for instance you had real investigations going on they might not have been the best but at least you were having somebody look at them and then all the resources most well a lot of the resources meager that they are in ufology got thrown into Roswell then MJ-12 and it just kind of went on from there. And I, they've never recovered. And, it, you know, they, I trace it all back to Condon and the, the effect that that had. And I think you're quite right, Gene, that they looked around and they said, well, okay, what do we do now? Because suddenly maybe not so many scientists are listening to us anymore. Well, let's go, you know, you preach to the converted. Um, and that's what they did. And they, they found a way to make money at it, too. More money than I think people were making probably in the 50s and 60s off of it. Well, I know that so, very few books ever sell a lot, and I don't think all that many conventions make a lot of money. So I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about that. I presume, though, that some of the more recent conventions, if they weren't bringing in the crowds, well, they would certainly at that point not do the conventions. And certainly with now with Roswell becoming a tourist attraction, that's the other thing that's so unfortunate about the way the UFO field is. We have based the entire UFO mystery on one or two ancient cases where the dust has long ago been burned up. It hasn't just settled. It's just burned and gone away. You know, there is no dust. There's nothing left. And there's really very little new information that we can get about these cases. But we're depending on them for everything about UFO reality. What about those thousands of other cases that people have reported that have a lot of important information? You know, at this point, are we ever going to learn any more about Roswell? And, of course, you are skeptical about Aztec, we had a guest on who says Aztec occurred, and he has evidence for it, but who knows? Aztec is ufology's Dracula. No matter how many times you stake that thing, somebody comes along and pulls the stake out, and they haven't read the manual on vampires that says you have to leave the stake in in order to keep it dead. And so that's what Scott Ramsey did, um, along with Bill Steinman and, uh, and Wendell Stevens and a couple of others over the last 20 years. They pulled a stake out of the, the Aztec case. And I, I'm, I'm not kidding, fellas. You know, you talk to serious UFO researchers, with one or two 
receptions, and they just roll their eyes. And well, you see, they didn't see the movie from the 1940s called House of Frankenstein, okay? <laughs> or was it House of Dracula? One of those House of yeah. movies where that's what was happening with the horror films, and they couldn't get you to come into the theater to see one monster, so you had to have three. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it didn't work. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now it's host I can give them a try you'll be glad you did to learn more about host I can Go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way... You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, filmmaker Paul Kimball joins us. And we're talking about the miserable state of affairs and what we could do to remedy things. We're going to fix it tonight, ladies and gentlemen. No, we can't. We can't All because right, we it's about the it. triumph of branding. No, it, it's a triumph of branding in the culture. You have Roswell as the example of a very well-honed brand. And so people now turn to it as it's it's the default. It's the Ziploc. It's the Slinky. People it's think of jello. it as, well, it's a brand, you know, when people think UFO, they think Roswell. And this is where their mind automatically goes. And that's why it brings all that baggage with it. It really sort of reflects the triumph of branding in every aspect of our society. That's a reality we have to deal with. So how do we redefine the brand is the question. First of all, I don't see Roswell as being the problem. I see Roswellism being the problem. And Roswell isn't the only one. To me, the broader problem is the distrust of government and this idea that there is a grand overarching conspiracy, that aliens are here and we're dealing with them and all of that sort of stuff, none of which is even remotely provable. So you have to really accept it on faith. And I think that's a much longer conversation and it buys into this, me, a very disturbing undercurrent. There's such a thing as a healthy distrust of government, and then there's an unhealthy distrust. And I think in ufology, the unhealthy part of it has really started to manifest itself. Like the whole idea of a disclosure movement, let's assume for the minute that the government really is covering it all up. There are aliens here. They've cut a deal. You know, We have underground bases and all of that. Do you really think, does anybody really think, that the disclosure 
disclosure movement, the exopolitics movement, anything, Freedom of Information Act, any of that stuff, if that existed, would wedge that out, that there would be a break. No, absolutely on, the, on the one hand, you've got people telling you that they've had the greatest cover-up for 60 years. Somehow, they've managed to keep the lid on the biggest truth in human history for 60 years. And on the other hand, they're saying, well, this hearty little band of Robin Hood-like adventurers, you know, wading through Freedom of Information Act requests and, and trying to bring public pressure through XPAC and running Steve Bassett, who I like as a person, for Congress and all that sort of stuff, is going to make a difference. And that is complete and utter crap. Well, you know, Major Donald Kehoe was doing that in the 50s. He was saying, we've got to have congressional hearings. The government is covering it up. NICAP was formed for the purpose of getting those congressional hearings. It was all about that. He was saying, once we have the congressional hearings, we know those honest Congress people will demonstrate UFO reality, and then we can go back to our lives. Well, look, here's the sad truth about Kehoe. Kehoe was nuts, too, you know, in a sense. And I know um, it's weird because your friend Jim Mosley, who I consider a friend, although I've never met him, and Dick Hall are like arch enemies. And Dick Hall's a friend of mine, too. I quite like him. And so if Dick happens to be listening to this, I apologize because I know he's a big fan of Kehoe. But Kehoe was nuts, too. Kehoe is the grandfather of exopolitics. Exopolitics is the bastard child of, of Donald Kehoe by way of Stan Friedman. They've created it with this idea that there's a massive government conspiracy, which Kehoe talked about, that aliens are here, you bought the extraterrestrial hypothesis, is a fact, not a hypothesis. And so, you know, exopolitics, they've created it. And instead, what we should have been doing, you can you can look at serious guys, you should listen to people like, although you don't have to agree with them, but you should listen to people like Jacques Vallée or Alan Hynek, for most of his career at least, people that were skeptical but open-minded. And I think when you talk to real scientists, and Kehoe certainly wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a scientist of any sort. No, he was a balloon pilot, by the way. Yeah. And an aviation writer. That was it, folks. And full of hot air, quite frankly. I, I've never understood, you know, ufology's interest in or I well, I understand he formed NICAP and yes, he's a seminal figure in a certain Actually technically thing. he didn't form NICAP. It was formed by a guy named Townsend Brown who was right. trying to create yes. free energy and all that stuff and anti gravity. Right. And that was it. And the thing was falling by the wayside because they were tossing all sorts of money into fancy offices, fancy publications. It was about to go out of business, and somehow Keogh got involved and scaled it down, got all these ex-military people to be on the board, and you wondered, you're saying that the military is covering up UFOs, and who is on your board? Oh? Yeah. The former head of the CIA? Oh. Helen Cotter, and yes, yes. I, I just don't see the attraction to Keogh, frankly, and I think if you compare him to a person like Heineck, it's not even close. I mean, Heineck was a real scientist, uh, I think, made mistakes, obviously, but that's somebody that the ufology should have pegged their horse to, and Valet, and others like them. And Jim McDonald, who accepted the ETH as, as really the extraterrestrial fact, but McDonald was such a good case investigator that he came to a conclusion I wouldn't too, but I certainly would respect McDonald and his talent and his abilities. But, you know, if you read sort of the what Valet has written about the fights that took place between Heineck and McDonald, um, and McDonald basically saying, well, hi, you know, Alan, you've got to come further. You, why are you still sitting on the fence? You know, McDonald's another one of those guys, for all the respect I give to him, that is lionized by the UFO community as some tragic hero, and yet I think he made a mistake, too. He overreached his evidence, and I think that's why a lot of, pe- of his own peers started to turn their backs on him and ridicule him. And Heineck and guys like Heineck and Valet and others, uh, Peter Sturrock's another one, preeminent scientists, and they understand that it's a mystery, it's not a fact, it's a, these are hypotheses, 
Institutions. It's Worthy's investigation. And unfortunately, their voices have been drowned out in the noise of cover-up, conspiracy, crash flying saucers, 57 alien races, and all that sort of stuff. So this gets back to the thread on your, your Paracast discussion forums and people saying, well, who, who do we blame? Well, the media. We blame the media for this because they report it that way. Well, they didn't create it. You know, ufology created it because that's what they started talking about and the majority of them. And if that's the message you send out, I guarantee that's what the media is going to report because that's what you're telling them. And the difference is, though, and here, guys, I think, you know, you can sound depressing and, and horrible for two hours or you can say, well, great, that's the bad news. The good news is you can change it. You can rebrand. It takes some effort and it takes patience and it takes time, but it's, it can be done. And as in this thread on your forum about the media, I've been trying to tell people, look, first of all, there is no such thing as the mainstream media, quote, quote. There are independent producers, there are networks, all sorts of people with all sorts of different agendas. There's not some cabal. I don't get my marching orders when I make a film from MJ-12. I wish, because there'd probably be a check attached to it, too. No, you, you know, you get licensed, you go out, you make a film. And I've been able to make films, and I'm not the only one. Mike McDonald, who made the Shag Harbor film, um, and also a film called Northern Lights, actually it was a two parter on Canada's UFO history and he's making one on abductions now. We work for uh, Space in Canada. We don't work for them, but as independent producers they license our films. And I've been able to sell them serious film after serious film after serious film. I know other people in the United States that have done that. There are good filmmakers out there. There are good authors out there trying to do this kind of stuff. You can do it. It's just a lot of people in ufology don't even want to bother because they've already made their minds up. So I will quote my Uncle Stan and say, ufology's biggest problem is, a lot of it, they don't want to be bothered with the facts because their mind is already made up. And again, they've moved on. And I think that's been the biggest mistake. Well, now, there is a benefit you've had, Paul, being Canadian in that the Canadian government actually funds creation of media, unlike, for example, the United States federal government, which really doesn't have any significant system set up to foster and support independent filmmaking. You, you, you have a bit of an advantage up there, and I think that's one of the reasons that and feel free to shoot me down on this, but I think that's one of the reasons that there is so much interesting Canadian media that is, isn't considered quote-unquote mainstream. If you look at the situation, certainly in the United States, there is a tremendous amount of private money tied up in the production of media that ends up guiding the media in a certain direction. I, I, I don't think you can completely discount that. This is not a black-and-white situation. But in, at the end of the day, what drives the media is ad revenue and ratings, and ratings determine ad revenue. And that is no different in Canada than it is in the United States. And the myth in Canada, and I will shoot you down, you know, yes, we get government funding. There's tax credits. The government invests in my film, blah, blah, blah. But none of that happens unless I can sell the film first to a network. It has, that's the lever. And so they pre-license a, a production. They say, look, we're going to give you X amount of money. That's our license fee for one year exclusive, three years non, to air it on our network in Canada. And then I use that as the lever. And it's usually about between 30 and 35% maybe of the total budget. And then the rest of the money falls into place after that. But the government doesn't commission me to make films. The government just says, oh, the private sector has already commissioned Paul to make films. Now we're going to give, we'll give more money to make sure it happens. Because well, we sure. can't, we can't compete with the United States. And I'm not trying States. to say it's black and white, Paul. It's not like the government is what makes it absolutely possible. But the, it's a it's a feedback loop. The government really does help facilitate it. And I think that 
has a real impact on both the quality, I think, and the content itself. It really I, does. Honestly, guys, the government has nothing to do with the quality because they have no role other than to give the money. Um, and it's basically a business analysis on budget and stuff like that. So, again, I deal in terms of editorial content and that sort of stuff, the actual filmmaking, the only people I deal with are the networks here. And the only thing the government really, truly, the federal government really, truly cares about, we do have Canadian content rules where you have to air a certain percentage of your production has to be Canadian-made, and it has to be made by independent producers, meaning the network can't make it themselves. They have to farm it out to people like me. And that's great, but that doesn't mean the network has to commission good projects. Frankly, they could commission you know, a film about aliens are green and there's 57 races and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, they don't. They, they commission serious stuff because we can convince them that it will sell. And so I've spent 10 years trying to convince and being reasonably successful networks that these films will sell, that there is an audience for people who want a relatively serious discussion about UFOs. It's something worth taking seriously. It would have been probably a little easier for me to convince them, hey, little green man, and let's throw a few skeptics in and throw a couple of crazy people and, you know, standard kind of stuff. And maybe that's the one thing I'd say we have over our American friends to the south. Maybe we try a little harder, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. as filmmakers. I don't know. But I know folks in the United States that, that do pretty good work. It's just you have to look, you have to find those things. But there are lousy filmmakers in Canada. There's lousy filmmakers in the States and in England. Sure. And there's lousy authors, too. You know, the people are just churning out books that are complete and utter dreck. But then you find a book that's worth reading, and that's just the way it's going to go. But it's not because of some grand conspiracy by the mainstream media to put out a message of we need to laugh at all of this stuff. No, that just doesn't exist. And I try telling people, too. I, I end up sounding like a shill for the media. And I'm not. I have, I have my own criticisms of the, of the media and the way that sometimes, and I've said so publicly on my blog and in other places. In particular instances, I'll say, this is crap, and this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, and, and on and on and on. But I have never, in 10 years, uh, and I've made one, two, three, four, five, six films, I guess, on UFOs related, those kind of subjects, I've never had a single commissioning editor or anybody tell me to do anything. I just turned the film in, and they broadcast it. I've never had a problem. I've never heard of anybody else having a problem, including in the United States, friends and fellow colleagues down there. I've never heard of them being told, do this or don't do this. So if you get a bad film, it's because an independent producer probably made a bad film. Not no. somebody at a network said, MJ-12 has told us we must you know, spread lies or whatever. Huh. It just now, doesn't work that way. You brought best evidence down to the audience of believers at the X conference. What was the reaction that you got from people who saw it? I mean, what kind of feedback did you get ultimately from the believers? Were you in the audience, David, for the Q and A? I, I can't remember. I was indeed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I couldn't tell because Bassett left before he turned the lights on, and nobody knew where the light switch was. So, so. yeah, I, there was there was actually one person in the back who stood up to ask a question, and and uh, I said yes, sir or madam, and then I said I don't mean to insult you. I just can't <laughs> see whether you're a guy or a girl. So you know, whatever. And it was a good reaction. Uh, people liked the film. Most of them are already ET efforts. You know. The aliens are already here. So they see the film as just confirming what they already knew. And frankly, the film wasn't made for those folks. It probably has nothing to say to them because to them, they already know. So they go, oh, great, 10, 10 more cases. This just proves it even more. We're now at 180%. No, the film was made for people that don't know what the answer is or who know nothing really about the UFO phenomenon other than Little Green Men and, and maybe um, the X-Files. So the film was made for the, the average audience, your normal viewer, which can 
comprises 99% of the population because um, most people really don't care about UFOs and know very little about them. Um, despite what people within ufology would like to think, they are a teeny tiny niche. I mean, pro wrestling has more adherence by far than ufology by far. Even yeah. independent pro wrestling draws bigger crowds than ufology. <laughs> so I'm not like the WWE can't even begin to compete. I made my film for those kind of people that don't really give a second thought to UFOs. And I said, look, the, the idea of best evidence was, look, here's 10 cases. If any one of these cases resonates with you and you go, wow, like RB-47, that's, you know, an Air Force, a top-notch U.S. Air Force crew in the late 50s and radar and signals coming out. And oh, by the way, there were other RB-47 cases. And here's one of the guys who was in that crew, blah, blah, blah. Or Kelly Johnson, you know, one of the foremost aircraft designers of the 20th case. century. If any of those resonate with you, then you should probably be a little more interested in the UFO phenomenon. So I, you have to start somewhere. And I think ufology has to completely rebuild itself, or as you would say, David, rebrand itself. So you got to tear the house down and start building again. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Paul Kimball, filmmaker, is here to help us tear down ufology. Mr. UFO Field, tear down that wall or whatever. Okay, so how do we tear down ufology? How do we build it up again and create something where we can learn what's going on? Well, actually, it's interesting. Stephen Bassett, who I disagree with about a lot of things, at least has sort of the right idea in a roundabout way. And that is he was going to take, um, what is it, Fast Walkers, Robert Miles' film, and give 400 and some odd copies to every member of the House of Representatives. I don't think he was going to give them to the Senate, but um, maybe he was. I don't know how much good maybe giving it to politicians does, but that's not a bad idea. Why not? I wouldn't give them fast walkers. <laughs> I, I'd give them your film instead. I'd give them best evidence. And I don't mean to sound uh, arrogant, but honestly, there are really? 10 great cases. Or out of the blue, give them out of the blue. That's a good film, too. Give them something to start with that doesn't mention conspiracy. And this is another one of my bugaboos. If you're going to go to the government and ask them to do something for you, like release information or whatever, give you money, maybe to fund a scientific study, anything. I'm just thinking. I'm just you know spitballing here, guys. Uh, you know, Work with me. Maybe the best way to do it is not to go to them and say, you're the problem, you're evil, you've been lying to us for 60 years, but you know, by the way, can you help us out now? I'm, I'm just guessing that maybe that's not going to you know, sort of resonate with anybody in government, and I, I don't blame them. Maybe the best way to go to them, and as I tear the ufological house down, this is what I would do, is say, look, we've got a mystery here. Maybe it's a threat to civil aviation and the O'Hare case, and there are many other cases like it. We don't know. And it's not necessarily aliens. I wouldn't go out of my way to say, we're not saying it's aliens. 
we're saying there are things in the sky that we can't explain that might be a threat to civil aviation. I wouldn't even talk about a threat to national security. I might say, well, you, what happens if a plane gets knocked down someday? And, and that's a good way to start spinning it. And find things that will resonate with people in their day-to-day lives, because we all fly, for instance or most of us do. So we've all been in airplanes. Fine. There are UFOs, things in the sky that we can't explain, unidentified aerial phenomenon, even better. What happens if one of these things hits or interferes somehow with your airplane? I mean, they won't even let you use your cell phone. So if you've got things in the atmosphere that are giving off electromagnetic signals or stuff like that, what might that do to your plane's navigational system and that, and that kind of thing? And then, I, you know, you would say, well, look, there might be needed, maybe some of these things are meteorological. Let's try and get meteorologists in and, and then bring people in, encourage them to come in from all walks of the scientific community, the journalistic community, and frame the message and give them a story that doesn't sound completely nuts. And if you go to folks and say, aliens, government cover up, blah, 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 then you're just, that's the reaction you're going to get. And nobody's going to listen or they're going to make fun of you. Isn't that, though, idealistic, though, Paul? Because how do you do that? How do you tell the people who really want to push their belief that we're being visited by aliens? How do you say, shut up, folks, we're not ready for that. Let's just deal with the essentials here about what we can learn in a scientific fashion, and if it turns out to be aliens, fine. But don't start off with aliens as numeral uno because you're going to turn off the serious people. You ignore them, honestly. I mean, it's a lesson I've learned over the last two or three years. I was a frequent critic of exopolitics about three years ago. And uh, on UFO updates and other lists, I would go head-to-head with Michael Salas, as a number of people did, and, and others. And that was a mistake. Because outside of maybe a couple hundred people on the planet, nobody cares, nobody knows who he is. And so the serious people within ufology sort of think that they have to stamp these little fires out and stuff like that. And nobody's listening to these people. So it's like our friend in the Czech Republic. If you give them any attention, as we've learned, you're just fanning the flames of the fire. You ignore them, they tend to go away and leave you alone and go back to where they came from, which is a very small group of people in their mother's basement or something, um, making popcorn and, and watching porno flicks or whatever. And I speak now of our friend in the Czech Republic, as opposed God. to Michael Stala, who at least you know has a real PhD from a real university somewhere. And so you ignore them, and you just say, look, I'm not going to talk to you people. I'm going to, here's the message I'm going to send, and I'm going to go talk to serious people. And those people will either ignore you or not, but you just keep at it. Maybe it's time for guys like Jerry Clark and Dick Hall and all of and the younger ones too to just completely walk away from all of this stuff and and just get back to serious stuff so Jerry can write his UFO encyclopedias and stuff and send a free copy to you know 20 scientists or or whatever and be prepared for a long haul because you are going to have to completely reorientate the way that people think about all of this. But I think a good way to do it, a good way to start, is to reframe the message and put it in a context that will impact on people's daily lives. What was it, Tip O'Neill? Some politician, I think it was O'Neill, used to say that all politics are local, meaning basically, you know, all politics come down to what is impacting people in their daily lives. And, uh, you know, air travel is a good place to start. And so with the O'Hare case, here's what, here's what you got. You got a lot of UFO guys who were screaming bloody murder pretty quick about a cover-up. Like, this is a cover-up, and the government's obviously clamped down and blah, blah, blah. Ignore that and just say, look, what we've got is there was something sighted over one of the world's biggest airports by pilots and et cetera and all that. And perhaps that's a civil aviation 
problem that we should look into a little more closely. And if you live in Chicago or if you fly through Chicago, you might want to just send an email or a note to the FAA. And if they get enough of those, eventually they're going to do something and on and on. And no one case and no one incident and no one person is going to solve it or make a difference in and of themselves. But if everybody took that approach, you know, I don't think it's naive. Everything starts somewhere, guys. And I like to use this example, which Americans don't know about probably. But the current prime minister of Canada is a conservative named Stephen Harper. Twenty years ago, the party that originally became the conservatives called the Reform Party was a protest movement out west. They had no members of parliament. They were basically, you know, a few thousand guys in Alberta disgruntled about the way the federal government was treating them and they got cranky and kind of thing. And Canada has seen this kind of movement before and usually what happens is they'll get a few seats in the House of Commons and, and then they'll go away after 10 or 20 years. Well, they're the government of Canada now because sometimes if you keep at it long enough and you stay on message and stay focused, which they did, and you bring yourself into the mainstream, which they did, and they stop talking about everybody should be carrying guns and we have to outlaw abortion and all that stuff that ticks off people in the mainstream. And they started stressing, well, pro-business and tax cuts and those kind of things. People listened. In a roundabout way, ufology can do the same thing. Stop talking about the things that tick most people off, cover-ups, conspiracies, weird stuff, and start talking about the things you know that sound sensible to them, that don't completely raise their hackles and go, well, you guys are sci-fi nuts. And, and those would be things like, well, it's a mystery, and credible witnesses, and military witnesses, and civil aviation problems, potentially, and maybe even a national security problem if our Air Force doesn't know what, what's going on up there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But see, here's the problem with that, Paul. I think it is a little idealistic. If you look at just the situation as far as what impacts people's daily lives, this is down there somewhere with the price of slinkies. This does not impact people's daily lives, ultimately, based on all the other stuff, certainly in the States. I mean, most Americans don't seem to have much of a real handle on the impending currency meltdown. They, they, it's just not something that they care to think about. And they're in denial about a lot of things. This doesn't even show up on the radar except as entertainment. And I think that's why it's marketed as entertainment. You know, certainly I'm thinking about what goes on in the U.S. I don't know that people want to approach this in a serious way. It, it, it doesn't come up in that sort of a context, so they don't think of it that way. Well, no, that's the other thing, too, that I would add. Why should they? I mean, honestly, mm -hmm. the war in Iraq and terrorism and the mortgage crisis and maybe even abortion, whatever, any of those the sort of top 20 political topics that would be prevalent in any Western country or any country, I guess, why, why should UFOs even be even remotely considered in there? And it gets back to what you want to accomplish if you're really interested in the serious study of the UFO phenomenon. Why do you care what 95% or 98% of the American public or the Canadian public think, really, at the end of the day, unless maybe it's to put some pressure on the government to maybe put a million or two million or three million into a scientific study or something, perhaps. You know, by and large, what you should be doing, and this is another mistake I think ufology has made, is they've tried to cast the net far too broad. They've tried to convince the general public, and you hear it, they'll say, statistics, public opinion polls show that 30% or 50% or 80%, whatever, believe in UFOs, whatever that means. And, you know, so they'll try out those public opinion poll statistics. Well, what does that prove and who cares? Because it's not doing you any good, fellas. The people you need to convince are scientists and historians and journalists, not 
to spread the gospel that ET is here, but just to get a serious investigation going. It doesn't even have to be a public investigation, honestly. It can be, you know, sort of underground, which I think is where a lot of it's been going on, the serious stuff for 20 or 30 years now. So what are you trying to do? Are you trying to sell, as Stephen Greer does, a ufological evangelical movement and get adherents and people who buy books and stuff? Great. Then you're over there. If you're trying to get people seriously interested in the UFO phenomenon, well, you've got to understand that the war in Iraq today, but it'll be something else tomorrow. Something like that is always going to trump the UFO phenomenon. It's not even close. And it should be, frankly, because as far as I know, the UFO phenomenon hasn't killed 4,000 people. And I'm just talking now about American soldiers. Forget about all the other people who've died. And I speak only of Iraq. And then you can look at other problems, you know, like poverty and all that sort of stuff. Those are real big, serious issues, problems, whatever you want to call them. And UFOs, there's something interesting. So people ask me often in interviews, especially if the interviews are being done by people who sort of believe aliens are, are coming here. And they say, well, you don't seem to take this as seriously as we do. And I go, well, I don't. I mean, to me, it's an interesting mystery. It, it is, honestly, a hobby. And I can make films about it because I'm interested in it, but I make films about other things, too. And I do encourage people, I would like to see science take it seriously. But I would like to see science take a cure for cancer or AIDS more seriously. And again, even within science, there are things that I'd like to see science spend more money on. So if somebody said you could spend a billion dollars on finding a cure for cancer or a billion dollars on discovering the truth behind the UFO mystery, I'd put my money on the cure for cancer. I wouldn't even think twice about it. Well, that so, depends on what the UFOs are. What if the UFOs... But we don't know. Okay, but what if they are aliens, what if they do represent something that could affect everyone? Well, Not just, then, the, well, then it could be more important than all that other stuff. Not saying that it well, is, we yeah, don't but, know. But we're not going to figure it out either. The aliens, if they do exist and if they are here, they'll let us know publicly when they want to let us know. Honestly. If ET's here, I don't think a bunch of UFO guys or even scientists are going to be able to sort of come up with some method of making them reveal themselves or whatever. I mean, they would be of an almost godly like status, if they can get really get here from even the closest neighboring star system, which is a technology far in advance of anything that we can we can imagine it, but we're, you know we're quite a ways from ever being able to do it. And so, if they can do that, they have powers and abilities that are almost godlike, even to powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, not yeah, the- quite so. Like nothing we do is really going to make them reveal themselves if they are there. So I think at the end of the day, if it is aliens, it's not a mystery that we can solve. It's just one that we can keep it being interested in. And then it's sort of, yeah. Well, this is where it's difficult being in my shoes, the uncomfortable middle position of not being able to be as ultimately objective as you, Paul, because I'm someone who falls into the experiencer box. Right. So here I am faced with this huge mystery, which uh, for most of my life I've not really considered. And not really, not in the way that I have for the past year and a half. And so here I am trying to understand things that I've seen, that I've experienced, and uh, trying to at the same time remain skeptical and logical. It's a very tough place to be, and I think that's one of the reasons that Jeff Ritzman and myself have formed such a bond, in that we both find ourselves in, in that same very uncomfortable position. And so we can't see this just uh, as something 
I don't want to say um, informal, but it's not just a minor mystery to us. To us, this is a major mystery. It's a difficult thing to do, to, to be in that position and try to engage either side in a conversation. To me, and, and people hate it, some people hate it when I use this analogy, it's like religion. You know, I have relatives who are evangelical Christians. Obviously, I would look at, I'm a hopeful agnostic. I look at religion and go, well, like I do the UFO phenomenon, I don't know. I sit on the fence. They say they've had an experience, literally an experience with God, touched by God. And you can go back through history, human history. I studied this when I was doing my master's degree. Experiential religion in the 18th, 19th, whatever, it still happens today. And they will tell you, you know, born again, all that stuff. We, we kind of make fun of them. And Well, not we, meaning you or I. I don't know if you do. I don't. But society sometimes makes fun of born again people. But, you know, to them it's a very real experience. And I would say, look. Well, if you haven't had it, you can't understand it. And I don't know what it was. Was it God? I have no idea because I haven't had it. I, you know, but once you're in that, once you've had that experience, you're quite right. And this is the UFO part of comparison. Same thing with UFOs. I, I do believe that once you've maybe not seen them, like who hasn't seen lights flitting about in the sky, but if you've really seen something that goes beyond just lights flitting about in the sky, then maybe that does change it for you. Yeah, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, it's like the abduction phenomenon. That's the one thing in the UFO world that I try and stay away from because I honestly don't know what to tell them. I think most of the cases are explainable through prosaic things, sleep paralysis, and a whole bunch of other things. Not just sleep paralysis, but a bunch of things. But there are always going to be those cases that I just look at and I go, you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> I honestly don't know what to tell you folks. You're either lying or you're crazy or something's happening to you that I can't explain. I can explain and this. We're going to continue with Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker, on part two of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Back with Hour 2 of Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. In the first hour, in case you didn't hear, we were going to tear down the walls of ufology and build them up again. But, you know, Paul, the thing I worry about is a lot of people, that's a commendable idea, but a lot of people are going to be, have to be dragged kicking and screaming because of the fact that they have vested interests, whether it's books, lectures, or experiences, how do you tell them, shut up so we can get some serious investigation? How do you do that? Uh, you know, I don't know. And if people are listening to this, this they're probably going to walk away and they're going to go, look, Kimball contradicts himself 28 times in, in 15 minutes. And, and it's true. I do. I'm not exactly sure what to do about all of this because I do kind you know, I do take the UFO phenomenon seriously. I've done some research on my own and, um, but it's still, it's at the level of a hobby, not an obsession or anything. But I, and for my part, for me personally, I, I just don't care. 
like what ufology says or does. I mean, I'll contribute to lists or whatever, but I go about my own business, so I'll make my own film regardless of whether the people in the teeny tiny world of ufology are going to like it or not. I make my film for the films for the general public, and I hope they like it and learn things from it. And then maybe I'll send, and I had this idea before Bassett did, I think, of giving uh, free copies of my films to at least cabinet-level members here in Canada and uh, and also some friends and uh, their friends in the scientific community and, and seeing if maybe one or two or three people sort of go, hey, maybe that's interesting. I t- was talking with a guy who's got a master's degree, for instance, in psychology. He's very interested in the abduction phenomenon. And I, he asked me, well, what, you know, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should sort of go forward in public with this? Uh, and I said, no, <laughs> get tenure. And then maybe you can do that. Uh, right. Get your PhD first. Keep it as, at a hobby level. Find people of, if you can of like interest. Don't be afraid of it. But you know, don't don't go public. I mean, don't ruin your career because that's what you'll do at the moment. But for me, I, I don't care what ufology does. I did oh, maybe four years ago. But for me, ufology, whatever that is, in quotes, is a lost cause. And um, so they can continue on their merry little way. Those that want to move into a more sort of serious and interesting way of looking at things, whether that's science or whether it's just what guys, my good friend Mac Tonys does, and other guys like Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, where they, you know, almost like thought experiments and, and just kind of talking it through. And that's great and that's fine. And I actually now find myself more interested in that kind of stuff than I do in even the serious scientific end of it. Because the truth is, I'm not a scientist. So all I can do is get scientists interested, but then I'm going to hand the ball off to them and say, well, you know, go to it, fellas. I, I can't help you when it comes to string theory, you know, or, or quantum mechanics. It's not my bag. So you guys deal with it. Um, what I can help you with is the media end of it and history, which I'm trained in, and evidence and interviewing witnesses, if that ever came up, sure. And like anybody else, I can have an opinion and based on the evidence and intelligent opinion. But the other thing about the ufology guys is they somehow think that when science, if they ever do, science becomes interested in UFOs again, that they will come knock on the doors of all the ufologists and ask for their advice and opinions and help. And the truth is, <laughs> nothing is further from the truth. None of those people are going to get phone calls. You know, if scientists really did take it seriously and, and investigate it, they would ignore ufology completely and they would do it on their own. So, you know, ufology, I did an interview with your friend, my friend too, Jeremy Vaney, and Jeremy asked me what I thought ufology was, and I said, well, it's entertainment, and it is. That's what it is. It's entertainment, and it's not going to solve the mystery, and you go on things like the Paracast discussion forum, and it's fun, and it's interesting, but there are some people that go on these forums, they're just so, they are, they're obsessed, you know, sometimes dangerously so, I think, for their own health, and none of them are ever going to solve it, and so this gets back to your point, though, David, if you're an experiencer, that's a little different. If you've experienced something that you can't explain, those people I don't make fun of. I do make fun of the obsessed people who you'd ask them, have you ever seen a UFO? No, but I know the government's evil and covering up all yeah. and I, I make fun of those people. But if you've actually experienced something, as I said about those abductee cases that I don't think can be explained, at least we haven't explained them yet, there is something there. And that's worth being considerate of and taking seriously and not mocking. And, yeah, so that's sort of the approach that I take. And I think I probably just contradicted myself again 28 times in 15 minutes. But, well, uh, this is a contradictory kind of a subject, Paul. And, and it is. What you said is exactly true, though. And 
want to add to that, what I've come to is that it becomes uh, a vision quest. It becomes a very personal thing. It becomes a very subjective sort of a journey that ultimately it's benefited by finding people who have undergone the same sorts of experiences, if for nothing else, to compare notes mm -hmm. and to have the equivalent of a support group. I mean, I think that that's ultimately what happens. I mean, you have extreme versions of it that, you know, you have people that get together and meditate to the Space Brothers. And that's sort of unfortunate, but there it is. The, of course, we're talking about something that involves people, and people are wacky. That You can't get around that. But again, just to bring up Ritzman, not that I ever can mention Jeff enough, but he and I went to this... Um, the X conference, not knowing what to expect. I mean, actually, we were kind of going to hopefully track down a certain few people and, and actually grill them. I want to go and find Jaime Wasson and uh, throw him up against a wall because yeah. I have some, some, some issues, I, but I also have some questions. And, and this is what's unfortunate. I attended his Spanish language session, actually helped him out with some technical problems, which was sort of funny, and then uh, saw him show some really fascinating footage, some of what he was showing, which he did not show in his larger English language session, which I found really fascinating. He did not, there was not a, an overlap of content, except with certain exceptions. He showed some, some shuttle-related and, and space station-related stuff that I found really compelling. He didn't show that stuff later on. So, you know, we went to, to track people down like that. But again, also because humans are social creatures, we wanted to see uh, who was going to be there and who we could ultimately really talk with. People, I mean, I went to go meet people like you and went to go meet and was very happy to meet and speak face-to-face -face with Rich Dolan. And I haven't brought up Mr. Dolan yet. But interestingly enough, you guys apparently got to uh, sort of work some of your stuff out. And so you have stuff that goes on like that that does make an event like that in some sense productive. I mean, ultimately, as I said before, you went there. How bad did it ultimately be, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, here, contradicting our number one on the show. Look, yeah, no, I went because um, Bassett paid my freight to get down there. And then I continued on with Chris and we did some filming out west and I had business to conduct. And frankly, I took a bit of a working vacation, too. So, sure, why not? Um, right. And because what I do for a living is to tell stories, you know, even exopolitics is a story to tell. And sure. I am looking at developing a film, telling a story, and it'll, you know, whatever my personal views are, I would take it seriously. Any story I would undertake, it wouldn't be, initially at least, to make fun of them. Now, if they wind up making fun of themselves, there's nothing I can do about that. That's the story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can guarantee you I, I could do a film on neo-Nazis. and you know, Well, okay, neo-Nazis is a bad example. I would set out yeah. to make them look stupid, and, and they'd certainly oblige. But, you know, I could, whatever, I could start to do a film. Errol Morris, who I, Michael Moore is a hack, but Errol Morris, to me, is the, the best documentary maker out there, certainly of a, of a high stature, makes films that show in theaters and stuff. And he did a film called Mr. Death, The Rise and Fall of Fred Leuchter, and a wonderful film. Yeah. One of the preeminent Holocaust deniers, you know, on the planet. Yeah. And, uh, and yet Morris, as a documentarian, I really try and do what Morris did. Morris never rams down your throat that Holocaust denial is evil and neo-Nazis are evil and bad. Oh, let's see, he lets him pick himself with his own rope. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's to me what a documentarian should do and it's what
what a guy like, for instance, Michael Moore doesn't do. Michael Moore, he's not a documentarian. He's a propagandist. And that's fine. And, you know, the left, the right, everybody has propagandists. No problem. It just irks me when he wins, you know, an Oscar for Best Documentary. But leaving that aside, the guys like Al Gore. They an Oscar also to Al Gore, so nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, they gave a Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore. Uh, anyway, nothing against Gore. I enjoy the inconvenient truth, and I agree with much, if not all, of what he says. But, you know, it's not Oscar-worthy stuff. It's in terms of a documentary, for heaven's sake. Don't be ridiculous. There are real documentaries out there that are telling, you know, stories in a way that this is the filmmaker in me coming out saying, no matter what good Gore's film did, it's not a documentary. For him to win a Best Documentary Award for that, I mean, great. What, do I just bring? Mac Tony's up, sticking in front of a, power, of a screen, let him do a PowerPoint keynote presentation on the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, and I'll win a Best Documentary Award for that. If you were the well, former vice president of the United States, that might carry some prestige. Or, or have the Bingo. proper branding yeah. behind it. I mean, it's back to branding. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. That's what Gore is. You know, he's not a scientist. He's the brand for the people who believe in global warming. And great. You know, if you can get a former vice president to do that for you, that's a pretty good brand. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Seacrane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Seacrane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking about branding with documentarian Paul Kimball. Okay, so the UFO brand today is Roswell, and we want to yeah. tear down the walls of ufology, build it up again, make it more scientific, serious. But the nature of society calls for us to have a brand. So what brand do we have for ufology? Well, I think a good place to start would be people. And I think a good person to start with, I think any, like we were talking about Gore. Gore's a good spoke. He's articulate. He's also well-known, all that sort of stuff. He's a good spokesperson for the global warming movement. Is it a movement? I guess I can say that. I think ufology needs to find a, a new front person and really sort of, if it, you know, ufology, whatever, the serious study of UFOs, whatever. And I think that person should be Nick Pope. Uh, in my mind, I have no doubt it should be Nick Pope. 
Uh, Nick's relatively young. He's still in his early 40s. He has the credentials. Um, retired MOD guy. I think when he finished, he held the rank roughly of a lieutenant colonel. You know, serious guy. And and he also ran the Ministry of Defense's UFO desk or whatever it was for three years. So he's he's got it all. That's the guy you should be putting out there. And uh, when the networks call looking for people, if they were to call, for instance, I don't know, um, Bruce McAbee, no offense to Bruce, friend of mine, but Bruce should probably say, hey, look, you know, um, instead of interviewing me, why don't you interview this Nick Pope guy? <laughs> you know, because he's young, and, our, and that stuff matters. And so I would focus, as I tried to, there's a specific reason. Yes, McAbee's in my film, DeCaul's in my film, Stan Friedman's in my film, but Nick Pope's in my film, too, and Mac Tony's closes the film, and Chris McBride, who's in her 20s, narrates it. And I, I specifically wanted a female voice, a young female voice, narrating the film. A, you don't hear much of that in documentaries of any sort, but B, you certainly don't see it in UFO films, and you don't see it at UFO conferences. Young people and women, those are two pretty rare things, David, you probably noticed at a, at a oh, UFO yeah. conference. Yeah. So... That helps, and I, I have had a lot of people um, sort of commend me for putting a different voice on it. And then Mac goes back to the young people thing. Mac's only 30 years old, and he's bright and young and articulate, and I gave him the final word, not Stan, not Maccabee, not any of those guys. Give it to Mac, because I hope Stan lives for another 30 years, and Bruce and all those guys. But their time is past, and it's time for a new generation of people, hopefully with some new ideas, I, I think, but even if they didn't, even if you were just going to flog the extraterrestrial thing again, you, you need new faces. You need new people to do that. And guys like Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern and Mac Tonys, and especially right now, Nick Pope, those are the kind of guys that you should be pushing forward. And uh, those are the kind of guys that if I make more films about UFOs, they're the ones that are going to be in them. In terms of best evidence, I you know never say never, but it's probably the last time you'll see Stan in one of my films. I don't think there's anything that Stan has left to say, at least in the films that I'm doing. You know, I'm going to start focusing on a younger generation and hopefully on new ideas. So that's what I want to do. What other filmmakers do, I don't know. So what about other topics in the paranormal realm, Paul? I mean, it's not like UFOs certainly are the only thing we talk about on the Paracast. We try to cover other paranormal topics as well. And certainly one could make the argument that there are realms of paranormal research where there is more tangible evidence even than the the ufo world so what about turning your your efforts and your talents to other types of paranormal topics is this something that you've thought about or is it just not something you're personally interested in doing well no i as i've gone on um i've become more and more interested in all aspects well not all i mean you know but a lot of other aspects of the paranormal, the esoteric, whatever you want to call it. I am developing projects now, hopefully. Well, for instance, the second thing I was, I was going to, after I did top 10 UFO cases, people mm -hmm. said, well, you're going to do another top 10 UFO cases film, like the next 20. I said, well, no, probably not. Why would I do a film about the 10 cases that came after the 10 best? You know, what's the point? What I wanted to do, because I like the idea of the top 10 films, was a top 10 crypto monster, whatever you want to call it, cryptozoology, like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Yeti. Who's number one? And look at those in the same way I looked at the UFO cases, not goofy Bigfoot guy in a suit thing, but, you know, the serious, like get Lauren Coleman on and have Lauren Coleman talk about Bigfoot and have Nick Redfern on talk about, well, I love the Mongolian death worm. I don't think it's real, but I just love that. 
that name, the Mongolian death worm. So the Mongolian death worm? Isn't that the name of a drink? I don't we can know, have Attack of the Mongolian death worm. We make a brand new movie. Yeah, there you go. Attack of the um, Mongolian Death Worm, starring leg- Mila Jovovich or something like that. Yeah, it's a legendary sort of crypto kind of creature in Mongolia, obviously. And most people seem to think it's just legendary. And unlike Bigfoot or, or maybe some of these other critters, uh, le- less evidence. But the whole idea of maybe cryptozoology interests me. And uh, so Nick Redfern and I went on a chupacabra hunt for five or six days in Puerto Rico, thousand. Five. That was for another film, and we ended up not using any of the footage on the chupy end of it in a film that I was doing about cattle mutilations here in Canada. But So I've got enough footage to, um, to basically, without any network, make a film about on my own, like just edit it myself, uh, with Nick and I in it uh, on the chupacabra thing, with witnesses that have never been heard because we went around and interviewed police officers who investigated it in Puerto Rico who've never been on camera. And so it's been sitting here for two years. And if I get a spare month in early 2008, which I think I will have, that's one of the things I intend to do. But, yeah, other aspects of the paranormal, too. Absolutely. 2012, which I'm not sure you would call necessarily paranormal, but um, if you talk to a guy like Peter Gersten, who I did when I was out in Arizona uh, with Chris uh, uh, a month ago, I know Peter. I know Peter. I used to drink Drano with him. He's a very nice man. He is. He's a wonderful man. He gets a little crazy on the Drano, though. Well, maybe he does, but he's got some interesting ideas about 2012, none of which really I think I agree with, but they're interesting ideas anyway. And there's lots of other people we were looking at doing. One of the things that I'm looking at doing is a a sort of talk show um, with Nick Redfern, uh, Greg Bishop, Mac Tonys, and uh, and possibly Tim Banal or maybe Nick Pope, uh, hosted by Chris McBride, where they just sit around. And today, we've got all the research done, 13 episodes for one season, on various subjects. UFOs was one of them. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. Remote viewing, which I know Greg Bishop is very interested in, uh, and, and so am I and others. Um, and, and those kind of subjects. There was a 13 different paranormal subject. Ghosts, ESP, uh, reincarnation, all of that stuff. I mean, it's it's all grist for the mill, and it's all fascinating stuff. So, yes, the whole UFO thing in terms of me making films, uh, I'm, I actually probably am going to take a rest from that for at least a year or maybe two. Not that I'm burned out, but I just like to do films on other things. Uh, I'm finishing one on classical music now, and uh, I've always done that films on other subjects. I've done more programming on non-UFO stuff than I have on UFOs, but it's, UFOs are an interest of mine. So even if I'm not making films about it, I'll still be researching or commenting on it. Well, you know what? Now that you've raised the other issue, maybe because we've torn apart the UFO field, made suggestions, hopefully some people will take them to heart, although I'm still skeptical. I think David is too. But whatever, at least you made some suggestions that are very positive. Let's look at your interest in some of these other subjects. We had a couple of shows on remote viewing, not a lot. And what's your take on that? Um, As Nick Pope would say, interesting if true. Uh, that's my favorite line out of the X conference. Interesting is true. It's Nick's catchphrase for everything. And I think it's quite a good catchphrase. Remote viewing is not something that I've looked into as much as, say, UFOs. It interests me. Any chicken and egg. A lot of people will say, well, the government spent, what was it, Project Star or something or other? 
somebody help me out here. Stargate, Starlight, whatever. The government funded a, a research project into remote viewing, I think for 20 years, the CIA or somebody, and they put $20 million or something into it. So some people will look at that and say, well, the government took it seriously. They put $20 million into studying it, to which I would say, do you know what the government puts money into studying? <laughs> you know, the government puts a lot of money into studying a lot of things that are complete and utter bunk. So just because the government uh, and the intel agencies were interested in it doesn't prove anything. Having said that, it's still interesting. And anyone who has experienced, and this isn't quite remote viewing, but anyone who's ever experienced deja vu, serious deja vu, and I have, and I think most people have, we should at least stop and kind of go, hmm, wait a second now. And there's, I know I'm, I'm sort of equivocating here, which is odd for me, but remote viewing, I really am on the fence. I know Greg Bishop, who's a good friend of mine, uh, takes it very seriously. He claims that he's been able to do it, uh, I believe. And if, if Greg tells me that, then I take it more seriously than maybe I would have if, if Greg didn't tell me that, because I know and trust Greg. So it, that is definitely something that I do hope to look into. The funny thing is, I think more people are interested in stuff like that than UFOs. Uh, I think you'd be able to get a bigger audience for remote viewing than you could for UFOs because humans, you know, remote viewing is a human thing. You know, you could theoretically do it yourself if it exists, if that ability exists. You might have the power, as it were. Whereas UFOs, whatever they are, they are probably not a human thing. So those are more down-to-earth kind of things that I think are, are probably more interesting to people uh, in the long run. So maybe more profitable for a guy like me. Huh. Well, now, you mentioned before, Paul, that you went down to Puerto Rico and did research on chupacabras and mm -hmm. were able to gather some sort of bulk of material, some sort of body. What did you find? Interesting, if true. No. Uh, what did I find? <laughs> um, I found that they took it, the authorities there took it seriously, and they, uh, the, the police investigated it. Their conclusion, and one that I concur with, by and large, was that it was the, the chupacabra phenomenon is a, com a combination of myth um, and fear in a sort of, I don't want to say backward country, but, I mean, let's be honest, a country where most of the people, or not just country, but countries, where more people are less educated than perhaps they are here. So they are more prone towards, uh, as we would have been um, some years ago, believing in myths and that kind of thing. But wild dogs, you go to, you haven't been to Puerto Rico, David, or Gene? Like, no, I have I mean, no. they are literally everywhere, wild dogs. And it's un an unknown phenomenon, you know, to a guy living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where the biggest problem is, you know, whether or not you, you have to license your cats. But in Puerto Rico, they, you know, wild dogs are everywhere. So the, the answer from the police was, look, this is the work of wild dogs. And then I went and talked to biologists and zoologists, and they said the same thing. And a combination also of myth and, and all that sort of stuff. Great. Then you go and talk. And I tend to buy into that. But then you go and talk to the people, the witness, like the sort of farmers who had their chickens and pigs and stuff killed by these things. And you walk down. I remember one case where Nick and I walked down with our, our, um, our research guide, Orlando Pla, who's a very good researcher in, in Puerto Rico. And you sort of see where these creatures were killed, i.e. the chickens, and I think it was chickens in this case. And you take a look at the chicken coop, if you will, and you just think to yourself, well, okay, how did the dog get in there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. And it, it was like chickens in this one and this one and this one were killed. And, okay, I can accept that the wild dog got in that one, but that one is blocked off from the next one and so forth and so forth. And so I would say, look, most of these cases can be explained as wild dogs and these sort of prosaic things, but 
without going too far out in the limb here, I think there are still probably a few cases of this chupacabra thing that haven't been completely explained yet. And the same thing is true of the cattle mutilation phenomenon. The vast majority of cases, I mean, like super 99.9%, I think, are, are easily explained if only people would just look at the scientific literature and would talk to, you know, some veterinary scientists who would tell you, well, no, of course, coyotes and, and predators and scavengers have done this, and it, that's a very long story. But there's still some cases, a few, that make you kind of go, hmm, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little smoke here. But that doesn't mean it's aliens or little critters. It could be any one of a number of things. It could be the government testing the, the cattle supply to see whether we're all being contaminated with, you know, the sort of BSE or whatever, which wouldn't surprise me in the least. So, yeah, there's, there is something to the Chupacabra story. If nothing else, it's a fascinating way of looking how a meme can spread and how these things get started and then how they just build a life of their own. And and that's a good, even if that's what it is, that's a good cautionary tale, even for people in, in our own countries, of how these things can just spiral out of control and suddenly what really is just a myth or a legend becomes accepted by at least some people as proven fact. And, and that's a fascinating story. Is there any such thing as true objectivity, though? Doesn't everything get contaminated by human perception? Yeah, of course. I mean, I make a, a big play about you should be as objective as possible, but you can never be 100% objective. You, you learn that very quickly in the, in, when you're studying the law, for instance. Judges and juries are humans. They will make mistakes. Um, they will be influenced sometimes, no matter how hard, and judges are, are less easily influenced than juries are because at least they're trained. But even judges can be influenced by considerations that they shouldn't be influenced by, and their objectivity gets tainted sometimes. Fortunately, that's what you have appeal courts for. Eventually, the theory in the law is somebody will get it right, you know. So, and somebody will probably have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars getting it right. But hopefully, usually most of those things are gotten right, but not always. There's a famous case in Nova Scotia where the justice system failed an aboriginal person named Donald Marshall miserably in the 70s. He was convicted of a murder he didn't commit, largely because of bias within the judicial system and the legal system at that time against the native peoples here in Nova Scotia. And it was, it was only, what, I think like 20 years later or 15, 20 years later that he was exonerated, and they paid him compensation. And, and then they tried to work out the inequities in the system. But the lesson out of that was objectivity is a myth, and you just try and do the best you can. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, MrUFO at WebTV.net. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we have documentary filmmaker on a variety of subjects, as a matter of fact, Paul Kimball. And we've kind of set aside the UFOs for the time being because there are so many other subjects related to the paranormal. Of course, as you know, Paul, there are some people who want to link all this phenomena into one big basket. UFOs, ghosts, all the other stuff coming from one source. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's like the unified field theory of the paranormal, isn't it, where you try and find the one equation that makes it all make sense. And um, I joke with Mac, my very good friend Mac Tonys about that, that his crypto-terrestrial hypothesis could be the unified field theory of the paranormal, that his little cryptos could explain everything. Valet is one of those guys who's talked about that in some sense, in that um, you know he tries to link many of the myths and legends, or whatever you want to call them, stories, unexplained events of the past, and show how they're very similar in many ways to what's happening today you know it's an it's an interesting way of looking at things but i don't buy it i think that there you know there are probably different explanations even if you assume they're paranormal for a lot of these different things And, and the interesting thing is a lot of people and i've said this to you guys before just going back to ufos for a sec dan friedman for instance gets a lot of flack sometimes including from you guys for not being open-minded about all these other ideas and nothing is further from the truth i can guarantee you i've known stan for 30 years and i've had a lot of conversations with him stan is focused on the eth there's no question about it aliens are his thing but he says look take the ufos the genuine ones that can't be explained he would say some of them i believe are aliens however not all of them and then he'll say um, if you ask him, it's possible that Valet's right, that there are extra dimensionals, or who knows, I don't think he'd ever say this, but he might. It's even possible that they're crypto-terrestrials. And then he says, I don't care. All I care about are the aliens, the ones that I'm convinced show some evidence of, of aliens being here. And that's fine. But he's not closed-minded about the other ideas. And that's the thing that I think the problem a lot of people in the UFO thing have, um, and maybe even the paranormal in general, they can get so fixated on their one idea, and, and Stan is not, but he is, but he isn't, that they will, to the exclusion of everything else, and it's fine if you want to focus on your one idea and pursue that, that's great, but you should also recognize that there are these other people, and maybe there are other explanations for some of these other cases, and what Stan will do is he'll just say, I don't care about those other cases, you can go pursue that, valet or Tony's or whatever, and, and maybe your explanations cover those ones, I just want to deal with the ones that you know, or what I'm interested in. And that's fine. The problem comes when you get somebody who says, my explanation covers all of it. Hmm. So they're all aliens, or they're all crypto-terrestrials. And uh, there are some of those people out there. And uh, those are the ones you, you, you're well served to avoid. Well, the minute that anybody says they have all the answers to really anything in the world, you have to wonder about that, no matter what their qualifications or credentials are. I think that anybody who's been a true student and a true teacher knows that. The yeah. teacher who, who gets up in front of an audience and says, I know everything. Well, that's the teacher you don't listen to. The teacher that gets up and says, I'm on a journey with you. We're going to discover some stuff and we're going to learn things. I'll pass wisdom along to you and hopefully you'll teach me something. That's the teacher that I always enjoyed and that's the teacher I try to be to my classes. I think that's really the only way that we can get anything accomplished. and. Look, we've been taken a task by some number of our listeners for taking an, uh, an editorial position in all of this, that when we have people on, we've made up our minds about certain things and that we're not completely open to everything. I don't think anybody is completely open to everything. I think if, if you are, yeah. there's something possibly wrong with you. I agree. Uh, you know, at, at that point. Um, but at the same time, 
it's like considering opinions, Paul. I, I know that certainly speaking for myself, when I listen to opinions, I'm I'm more interested in the informed opinion versus anyone's opinion. And, and I think that we're at a point at, as a society, certainly in the States, where for some reason people have been convinced that everybody's opinion is somehow valid or useful or true. And when did that happen? How did we get there? Well, yeah, no, I don't know. And believe me, given what I'm about to say, I definitely do not want to get into a discussion about 9-11. But um, I do know, and David, I think you were there. No, you weren't. It was Jeremy Daney, right? Nick Pope and I were there. And we were talking about the conspiracy thing with 9-11. And um, there was all these other people. And, and Nick and I said, yeah, it was a conspiracy. It was 19 terrorists. That was the conspiracy. Disagree or not with us doesn't matter. And fine, there, you know, one or two people in this other group that said, no, it was the government. It, at least they knew their stuff. But I, I looked at them and I said, well, have you guys, like you guys over there, have you read the 9-11 Commission report? I have Nick. Have you read it? Nick, yes. Oh, well, of course I've read it. Interesting and true. And they said, well, no, we haven't read the 9-11 Commission report. We don't have to. We know it's bogus. What? Like, you haven't even read it? You and I can no longer have a conversation. I'm sorry. We can't. Uh, you can dis you can read it and then come back to me and tell me 28 reasons why you think it's wrong. Fine. Then we can have a conversation. But if you haven't read it, we have nothing to talk about. And that's just one example that sticks in my mind out of the X conference. But opinions, you're quite right. Everybody has one now, and the internet's been the great <laughs> the great thing for this. And it's and I mean great in quotation marks. Usually people who have anonymous handles too. So you you get all the, which is another phenomenon that I just I go on for or whatever I use my own name so do I so do you David and Eugene on your own form I mean people know who we are and that's fine you can get the measure of the person to some extent but then you get these people with you know a handle like monkey guy four or something I don't know who monkey guy four is and they start spouting off about how they know this and that and this and that and here's my opinion on it. it's like what well okay if you're going to use an anonymous handle then you should probably I can live with that if you'll show me your sources like Put footnotes in so I can go look it up myself. Because believe me, I'm not just going to take the word of an anonymous guy that I don't know, no matter how rational they might sound. And so the best you can have with folks like that is a pleasant conversation where, you know, it's just a social kind of thing. You're lucky. That's one problem. The other problem is even if you do know who these people are, their opinions, like, honestly, Stephen Greer's opinion not to pick on the Benny Hinn of ufology, but you put Stephen Greer in the same room as Jerry Clark, and I have my disagreements with Jerry about a number of things, but night and day, I can talk to Jerry Clark even if we end up disagreeing vehemently about anything because I respect his opinion because I know it's an informed opinion. In Stephen Greer's case, I have nothing to talk to him about because, you know, like, no... Not all opinions are equal. Yes, everybody has the right to vote. That's where equality begins and ends. You know, and then the rest of it is all kind of flip a coin and and decide whether this person's telling you something that makes sense or not. And for instance, like with the 9/11 thing, if you haven't read the 9/11 Commission report, in my books, you have no right to say that it's bunk because you haven't read it. So all you're doing is regurgitating what somebody else told you or what your own subjective preconceived notion is. If you've read it and tell me it's bunk, I still disagree with you, but at least then we can have that conversation. And the same thing is true with UFOs or anything else in life. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up the 9-11 thing, because I know that in many ways, Paul, you and I politically are pretty far apart. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be kind about that and say that. So you think. Well, you know. no, I suspect so. Um, because uh, ultimately, when it comes to that topic, I have very strong theories, and I'm attacked for those theories quite often online. 
And, and that's a whole other issue. I did read that particular book, those findings. And at the same time, I mean, I had a level of involvement that day in one of the pieces of footage that was acquired and passed to the FBI. And it's interesting. Here again, I walk in this very strange center line where I've had people look at the piece of footage that my friend Scott Myers shot, claim that Scott Myers doesn't exist, claim that this footage is somehow fabricated or CGI. Mm-hmm. And I've gone online saying, hey, look, I know this guy. He's one of my oldest friends. I helped get this footage into the hands of the FBI. The FBI never uh, harassed us, never threatened us in any way. In fact, they were extremely helpful that we were able to come up with this particular chunk of footage that ultimately was used to determine how long the second building swayed after being impacted. Mm. Uh, So when I see things like people like John Lear, for example, getting online going, it was holographic projections. It's like, look, just stop it already. This This is crazy at the same time. Reality is not black and white. And so if one says, okay, there was a conspiracy, it was 19 hijackers, mm, it's not that simple. Like most of reality is not simple. You can take reality on the surface and say this is what it is. But ultimately, there are things going on under the surface that make everything infinitely more complex. And the problem is, I feel, that we live in a society where people have, in many cases, lost the ability to think logically and to work through things. They don't want to think logically. They want pre-chewed, pre-digested, preconceived solutions, answers that relieve them of the responsibility of thinking. And this is why we have religion being the power that it is. This is not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. This this situation has been many years in the making. And that's the, the problem. And certainly with regarding any aspect of the paranormal world, people want to believe things. They don't want to research. They don't want to actually use their minds to come to informed, to, to some extent, informed conclusions. Not everybody can be uh, a particle physicist. Not everybody can even understand all of the intricacies of engineering a building. Uh, They can't. This is a a highly specialized stuff that ultimately, as a consumer, as a person in the the masses, you can, you know, what do you do? You turn to experts. You try to get some level of filtration going on in terms of the information you're trying to process and you're trying to sift through. And, of course, the problem is in that the editorial voice, that filtration, ultimately, and this is where I think people have issues about the mainstream media, which is that, okay, if that's a level of editorial voice or filtration, somebody has to fund that. And who's funding that? And if somebody's funding it, ultimately, there is an agenda. And again, this is not a new conspiracy thing. This is the history of the world. And anybody who wants to debate that, go rent, or better yet, buy the movie network, And learn a lot about the actual history of the media as it stands today, because that movie, a piece of fiction that it was when it was shot, has, in I think, in every way come absolutely true. It all played out. And there's a lot to be learned by watching that movie. Well, you know, and there are UFO guys who would say, you know, E.T. the extraterrestrial is is more fact than fiction, and and who knows. Well, yeah, you and I just disagree. Everything you just said about not critically thinking, I would say applies to the 9-11 so-called truth movement. So there you go. And no, it's not as easy as 19, and Nick and I, well, we weren't quite joking, but both of us 
um, are well aware that it's that to us was the conspiracy. There's a lot of other stuff. It is a complex story, but none of it has to do to us with you know a government conspiracy to bring down the the twin towers and start a war in Iraq for oil and all that whatever people think. It's just a series of events that you know adds up to some people to that and to I think most thinking people it doesn't but that's a difference of opinion so you know people are always going to have a difference of opinion I don't go around trying to convince people that, that I'm right I mean because you know I found that in most cases uh, I'm not going to but I ran into a guy in a comic shop of all places in Toronto and he noticed I had a film festival um, briefcase and I was just in using the internet and he started talking to me fine he ran the shop and he said, well, what kind of films do you do? And I said, well, I make films about UFOs. And 20 minutes later, we're having this, this tete-a-tete, and I'm being polite, about I don't know how this happened. I didn't start it. 9-11. Why? You know, how it went from UFOs to 9-11. Yeah. No idea. We got into conspiracy, and somehow 9-11 came up. And I think I probably said something like, well, I don't believe there's a government conspiracy with UFOs, not the kind you're talking about and whatever. Anyway, the long and the short of it, guys, is I told them who I was. I said, look, here's my business card. You can go on my blog. You can see what I've written about UFOs um, or, or all of this stuff. And I held out my hand and, you know, I said, hey, Paul Kimball, nice to meet you. And this guy, he said, I'll shake your hand, but I'm not giving you my name because you're obviously, you've sold out and you work for them. Oh, and I boy. Just, uh, these are not made-up stories. These are real stories. You know, these are some of the kind of people I run into. But you should see some of the emails I've gotten over the years, too. Boo-hoo, cry me a river of tears. But I'm glad some of them came from people all the way across. There was one from Australia I actually thought about sending to the police. You know, where there's a kind of thing where people say, I've read what you've written, and, you know, the day is coming where the sides will be chosen, and you've obviously chosen your side already, and I hope you can live with it, because there's the day coming when you're not going to be able to live with it, and the truth will be told, and people will be held accountable. And it's like, well, you know, uh, that's a threat. <laughs> there are crazy people in the world. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You are the Paracast,
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, documentary filmmaker Paul Kimball, joining us, talking about UFOs, the paranormal, a variety of topics. This kind of reminds me about the absolute certainties that, as a lot of our listeners know, I was married twice. My first wife and I, I think it was a few weeks after we had gotten married, I was working at a very small station in the Deep South, you know, in the Bible Belt in the United States of America, and I'm a Jewish boy from... Brooklyn, New York, and she's a Methodist girl from Alabama. And we're sitting there holding hands as we have this preacher in the other room, one of these, you know, dyed in the wool, speaking in tongues kind of preacher. And so he starts with his sermon and he talks about the sinners. And he looks at us with his eyes, beady eyes, looking at us, the he sinners, knew. He knew. they are the sinners, you know, that kind of thing. He was good, he knew, yeah. Well, at least, you know, at least we could say we resemble that remark. But the certainty that people have, and that may be part of the reason why we look for answers that are simple, well, it couldn't just be some crazed Arab terrorists. There has to be a conspiracy. We don't want some random act of violence to have occurred. We want mm-hmm. there to be a conspiracy. We want things to be put in this little bottle here. And as soon as things become chaotic, as soon as things just happen, well, Hurricane Katrina had to be global warming. It couldn't just be the normal course of events that some years you have bad hurricanes and some years you don't. That's the way the weather patterns are. I don't know whether global warming contributed to that, but we have to have an answer in a neat little bottle or in a little box with a bow tie around it. And if we have something that has no explanation like that, we can't handle it, can we? No, and I think you're quite right, Gene, like with the 9-11 thing. I, if you sort of toe the so-called party line and say, well, it, it was the terrorists and blah, 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 then you get accused of, well, you just, you're in the box and you can't think outside the box and you just accept it. And I would say to the to people who look for the conspiracies, often I think you're quite right. They're the ones who can't accept that the world is a chaotic place. Bad things happen to good people. You know, no matter how powerful your country is or you are as a person or whatever, the little guy on the block or you can get Blindsided, mistakes happen, incompetent people run countries for long periods of time, as you folks have found out down there in the South, and, well, the South of us anyway. They're the ones who, they have to make sense out of it all. And so they find these, and the UFO thing happens in the same way. They have to make sense out of a, of a phenomenon that doesn't make sense at all. So they ascribe aliens and cover-ups, and, and they're the ones who, they build their own box, which is not to say that conspiracies don't happen. They do sometimes. You know, if your default mechanism is to always look for a conspiracy first, um, that's probably because you're not comfortable with the fact that the world is a messy place, and it can't always be explained in, in a way you'd like it to. And so, yeah, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, That goes back to, and that happens in the paranormal, too, yeah. But here's the thing, and like we find so often, Paul and Gene, when people use words, they have to be very careful about the definition of words. And I know, Paul, that you've had some writings online about your feelings about the use of the word fascism and your problems, certainly. And I don't want to talk about this in general, because if we get into this topic, this will be a whole other show. And probably at the end of it, you and I will be much less friendly towards each other. Well, unfortunately for me, things do get personal. And that's one of my own character flaws, by the way. I admit that I am a, a highly flawed human being. But uh, well, some people are more aware of it than others, unfortunately. But when we talk about the word conspiracy, I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking right now in my, um, my lovely dashboard on my 
wonderful Mac computer that I have a love-hate relationship with. I see that in my bundle dictionary, the word conspiracy is defined as a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. Now, by that definition, conspiracies are going on every day at every level of corporate America, certainly, by that definition. To get into a debate about that, would be, uh, I think, in many ways, just completely academic. Uh, ultimately, I think that by that definition, we have these things certainly inside of the United States government going on every day. And, and by the way, just and I think this needs to be said, it's very critical that when we even bring up the term Iraq war, I think that what we have to do is use the honest terminology there, which would be the Iraq occupation. This was not a war in any, by any definition, this was not a war. And so part of the problem, and, and I think that this is a, something that comes up all the time when we talk about any realm where there is a wide gray area, it's the use of terminology in what I believe are inappropriate ways. And so it's important. You know, people, when they use the word conspiracy, it's kind of like the branding of the word conspiracy. You think about crazies going, oh, man, I think I know what's really going on here. It's the it's this person doing that. And, oh, they're trying to take over the world. Oh, you know, uh, I keep coming back to the scene and network where Ned Beatty is explaining the cosmology of reality to uh, to Howard Beale. And he, he draws this image that ultimately, again, this movie was a piece of fiction, supposedly. It was a, an inspired piece of writing and film work. It was one of Pat Ch certainly Patty Chayefsky's most uh, renowned uh, screenplay. But ultimately, what we have is a very uncomfortable look into what I suspect is the reality of the way the world works. And when we talk about this in a reasonable sense, that's all good and fine. But ultimately, I think for many of us, we, we do live in a state of denial that is certainly pragmatic to be able to survive day to day and not go insane. I think that's unfortunately the other, the other extreme of it is that if you really do start to dig, if you start to pick at the scabs, what you find underneath is something that ultimately I don't think any of us can handle. And, and I'll just go on record here by saying that history when uh, the future historians look back on this time, they will not have a very high opinion of what we did and how we handled the situation. And I, I reserve the right to be wrong at all times, but my gut intuition, and you met me, I have a pretty significant gut, uh, it tells me that this is indeed what is going to end up playing out, and that in many ways, in many ways, this period of history is in many, it's the most exciting but I think also harbors some of the, the greatest darkness that human history ever has. And, and I'm not thrilled about that. I'm not saying this in a way that where I'm saying, oh, look, we're the meanest and baddest people that this planet ever saw. Check it out. But I don't know. I just I, I feel that, as I said, I mean, I, I don't think I'd want to be alive at any other time in history. Between Hot Running Water, Radiohead, and the Beatles, I'm, I'm a pretty happy camper. But uh, it, this is not going to be seen well by the future. And I think that's sad. And I'm you're going. right. I, I do disagree with you on almost everything you just said. So there, there you go. go. Okay. Uh, not, <laughs> okay. Not everything, but almost. Months, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have the bell and may the best <laughs> contender win.
Well, no, at least we can have a at least we can have a conversation, and we're not in each other's throats. Ultimately, yeah. I think that's what it comes down to, really. Well, you know, for me, I just look at the sort of historical continuum, and you see how history's played out, and everybody in every generation in human history has believed that their generation was the most important. It was going through the most important things that have ever taken place in history. And I said this on another radio show. Sorry, guys, you know, I'm not monogamous when it comes to radio. Um, I said this um, with our friend Alfred Lemberg, where I said, I believe that historians will look back on the Iraq war, occupation, whatever you want to call it, and it'll be a footnote in the history books of, of world history. Uh, you might have a pretty large footnote, but in the same way that we look back and they thought it was all of everything about it was the most important thing ever. The colonial wars that the British Empire fought in the, 19th, the late 19th century. And now, you know, 100 years later, how many people really know anything about the Boer War? And yet, yeah. where do you think concentration camps came from? Originally, the British built them in, the, in South Africa. And, and thousands of British soldiers and Canadians and Imperial soldiers died. And it was a huge mess, blah, blah, blah. And no, there's a statue here in Halifax to the, with a Boer, a Canadian soldier that fought in the Boer War, you know, kind of thing. And I can guarantee you, you get 100 Haligonians to walk by and they um, they couldn't tell you what war that guy stood for. It was just a war. So, you know, to us, it's and that's not like saying, well, let's forget about it. But I think we always think that we live in the most and we do, we live in exciting times but I think everybody's lived in exciting times because I just think living is exciting. So, you know, um, I would look and say, you talk to a guy like Mac Tony, he'll go on about the tech and Ray Kurzweil and all this stuff. They'll talk about the exciting technological advances and the foreign policy guys and, and those kind of people will talk about the exciting world we live in in the way that we're still reshaping the world after the fall of the Soviet Union and the, and the end of the Cold War. And everybody thought that with, what was it, Fukuyama or whatever wrote, the end of history. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's not the end of history. history it's, just, it's the end of one era in history. And, you know, the 50-year era in history is a relatively short one. And another era in history will begin. Well, well I'll qualify this poll this is certainly and i'll go easily and happily go on record saying this the iraqi misadventure certainly heralded the quick acceleration of the downfall of the american empire i'm completely happy saying that and i am positive absolutely positive and i don't say that very often but i have no doubt that history will bear me out on that this is this is the clearly where the inflection point of the american empire changed and certainly, I feel comfortable saying that I got to be alive to watch it begin its major downfall. And all I have to do is bring up the currency and look at it against the Canadian dollar. I rest my case. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, but you read, I see, I disagree. Again, I, you can look at the Canadian currency and you could have said the same thing in the 1950s, I suppose, because our dollar was worth more than years back then. And then it, then it down it goes and now it's back up again. And yes, things are, things are bad, but there's nobody on the horizon. There's no conceivable rival to the United States in our lifetime. Um, barring some technically, you know, like the Japanese or somebody invents super lasers <laughs> that can trump any atomic bomb or whatever. You know, there's no, there's no conceivable rival. Um, nobody's even close. But having said that, I will go back to the Boer War, and your listeners are probably going to be going, oh, my God, they're talking politics, and I swore the Paracast guys would never talk <laughs> politics. But you can go back, and where do you trace the beginning of the end of the British Empire, although Britain is still a significant world power, and you might say the Boer War was the beginning, when public opinion, even within the United Kingdom, 
turned against the empire to some extent. It was still obviously enough of it existed to get them through two world wars, but the view of the empire changed from one of a grand adventure where we were civilizing the world, blah, 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 to um, this is a nasty, dirty bit of business. <laughs> you know, not everybody likes us anymore. Everybody seems to hate us, including all our friends in Europe. And we're alone. And, and frankly, for people who know history, you know, why did the British get involved in the First World War? A number of reasons. But one of the reasons they became close allies with France is because they looked around after the Boer War and realized all their friends were gone. So, the, you know, the only people that were looking for friends were the French because they needed help against the Germans. So they said, hey, let's bury the hatchet, boys. Um, and, yeah, so you might be right, David, in one sense, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. It's already I happening. Don't, I don't we're there. Anything. Yeah, well, I disagree. I, I, by any measure, there's no country that is even close. So. Oh, wait a minute. There, there's a phone call from you, uh, for you, Paul. It's from China. They want to speak uh, with you. I don't speak Chinese, though. China. They um, want to talk with you, yeah. Anyone who thinks that China is a serious, significant threat to the United States in our lifetime, I think is, is grossly misinformed about what's really going on in China. And they're buying the hype, um, and they don't realize that what the Chinese actually have and what they're going to have to go through and what's coming for them. And there are, there are major significant strains. You think the Americans, you folks, have problems. There are major strains within China, rural versus urban, um, and, and industrialization versus the sort of agricultural economy, and nationalism versus communism, and all of this sort of stuff. They have sure. their own problems within their own country that are going to keep them from becoming a significant player that could challenge the United States in our lifetime. But that's my opinion. You have yours, and we can... <laughs> oh, you don't drink, so I was going to say we can have a beer. Yeah, but, you know, no, I'll have uh, a beer, and you can... I can folks, have tea. To the have tea and all that. You can have tea, Chinese tea. <laughs> Hey, hey, this guys, is why guys. can't trust a person who doesn't drink. That's Any Canadian will tell you that. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. I'm in trouble now. Yeah, hey, Paul, go. we're just about out of time, but tell our listeners where to find out more of the things you do and what you have coming up in terms of documentaries or other stuff in the near future. You can find me at the headquarters of the Imperial American Empire, otherwise known as MJ-12 Building in Washington, D.C., um, but we don't have an address. So, um, What am I doing? Uh, best evidence, uh, hopefully, will be on American television once our distributor sells it down there. And when, 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 when? Where is when? it, man? Come on. People well, I don't want know. It. You know, um, at the end of the day, folks in the U.S. have to buy it. So I would say to your listeners, if they want to see best evidence on American television, write the Sci-Fi Channel. They're the best bet. Or History. Those would be the two channels that I would think it would make most sense on and say, hey, maybe you should acquire this documentary. But our, our distributor's trying to sell it there. Well, here you go. Mac Tonys and I, I do like this. Mac's going to be up here in Halifax. We're premiering Doing Time, which is a play based on one of his short stories that he and I adapted. David, our mutual friend Chris McBride, starring in it and then we hope to take it on the road so I might not be doing filmmaking I might be doing theater next year um, take it on the road throughout the US and Europe um, to various fringe festivals and stuff so Paul Campbell's so, you know, going to Broadway yeah well I don't know about Broadway off 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 Broadway Hoboken okay Hoboken Sorry. all that coming okay. up thank you so much Paul Campbell Thanks, filmmaker <laughs> producer of plays and whatever else you're doing thank you so much for joining us on the PowerCast thanks Paul the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.